For me, the, the Navy kind of called out to me, even though I grew up in Louisiana, within special operations, I didn't see or do as much as a lot of my brothers. What I actually struggled with the most was what I did not do on the battlefield. There was an operation in 2005 where I was in the Combined Joint Special Operations Task Force, a liaison officer for the Naval Special Warfare Task Unit at the time in Afghanistan. The last place that I wanted to be was on the radios. The last place I wanted to be was behind the computers. The first place I wanted to be was on the battlefield, and I was not there. And that caused me a lot of anxiety and, and survivor's guilt, moral injury, to the point where I ended up self-medicating with alcohol and prescription medications, and kind of just looking for anything that was gonna numb the pain. The battlefield and war and life in general is never, ever gonna be perfect. You cannot wait for things to be perfect. You have to do things when they're not perfect. That, I think, is gonna help you to be more resilient. Hey, it's Michael, and this is the Kintsugi Podcast. I'll be back in a minute with this week's conversation about resilience. But first, if you wish to create a better life and have a better career, then please visit michaelobrienshift.com and download your free workbook on how to create a better life. In it, you'll discover ways to find more energy for the things and the people who matter most to you so you can create a better tomorrow. Hey there, it's Michael. Welcome to the Kintsugi Podcast and another conversation about resilience. This week, we get to hear from a husband, a father, a man of faith and service, a former Navy SEAL, a podcast host, a meditation teacher, and the energy behind Frogman Mindfulness. I'm talking about John McCaskill. He is a difference maker and is serving as a role model for all humans, but in particular men, showing them a way to step in to a new definition of masculinity, inviting them into a practice of mindfulness. So if you're ready, find a comfortable position, take a healthy breath in and a slow releasing breath out and get to know this week's guest on the Kintsugi Podcast, John McCaskill. John, brother, welcome to the Kintsugi Podcast. Good to see you. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me. I'm excited for this uh, this conversation and excited to see where it goes. Yeah, we're just going to go with the flow. Two dudes talking <laughs> about other dudes and mindfulness and all that good stuff and resilience and sort of embracing our scars, golden symbols of our strength. So why don't we do this? If I can invite you into leading a brief meditation. Sure. I know you have a podcast, so you're used to asking questions. And <laughs> um, since we're both meditation teachers, we're, I know I am used to leading meditation. So this is going to be a treat for me to sit back and uh, be guided. So uh, well, let's settle into a, uh, a meditation. I'll turn it over to you. Sounds good. Thanks, brother. Yeah, we'll keep it simple. You know, nothing too in depth. I don't know the extent of your audience's experience with meditation. So we'll probably just keep it to some simple breath work. And what we'll do is some four, seven, eight breathing, which for those who are not familiar, it's just breathing in for a count of four, holding for a count of seven, and then breathing out for a count of eight and doing that five or six times. And that's a, a great nervous system reset. Um, it can help to, it's kind of a self-tranquilization, if you will. Um, you can use that before, you know, if you're speaking and you get really anxious, it can help to settle you. Or you can do it before bedtime to help to calm the body, nervous system to get you ready for a good night's rest. I don't want to put you to sleep for the conversation, so I won't do too many rounds because <laughs> I want you to actually listen to what it is that, that we have to cover and, and discuss. So we'll just do, uh, let's do five rounds of that. So go ahead and get comfortable, whatever that looks like for you. And, and when I say go ahead and get comfortable, I obviously want you to be safe physically and psychologically. 
So obviously, if you're listening to this while you're driving, keep your eyes open and keep paying attention to your surroundings. But if you're able to just get comfortable and pause and take some time for yourself here, let's do that. And let's begin by exhaling as much as we can, really breathing out everything in the lungs and bringing your navel to your spine. Now breathing in for a count of four. Holding for a count of seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. And now out for eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. In for four. Hold for seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Out for eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. In for four. Hold for seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Out for eight, seven, six, five, four, three, Two, one, two more rounds in for four. Hold for seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Out for eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. In for four. Hold for seven. Six, five, four, three, two, one, and out for eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, and end. And as you end, just start to maybe wiggle your fingers, wiggle your toes, roll your shoulders, maybe move your head around a little bit. And if your eyes were closed, blink them open in your own time. Coming back to the here and now, we were we never left the here and now, but <laughs> coming back to the conversation. Thank you for that, man. Thanks for allowing me to lead that. That's always a, an honor and a privilege. Yeah, thanks, John. Yeah, that's, that was awesome. I love that four seven eight practice. It's yeah, it's fantastic. Part of my bedtime routine. There you go. Along with a little gratitude practice. So that's perfect. Well, now that we're all chill, <laughs> let's get into the conversation. So for people to get to know you better, let's take what you do professionally and we'll put it on the back burner. How would you describe who you are? I want to be very mindful in answering that. Let's see. Who am I? Um, I would like to say that I'm a husband and father first. I'm a man of faith. And, you know, won't get into what that faith is, but I, I have my own particular faith and I spend a lot of time and energy trying to be a better man of faith, a better husband and a better father, whatever that looks like. So I think that's who I am. And then the professional side is, you know, what I have to do to put food on the table <laughs> and a roof over our head. I hear you on that. We're going to get into that. So I love that. Thanks for sharing that. So... One thing that my wife and I love to hear are relationship origin stories. So how did you meet your wife? <laughs> yeah, this is a good one. Um, we actually met at SEAL Team 10. Uh, she was the orthopedic, or actually she wasn't orthopedic at that time. She was a physician assistant at SEAL Team 10. She deployed with us in a weird way. She, she worked for me. And uh, I remember reporting to SEAL Team 10 and kind of learning everybody's names and writing down, you know, some type of attribute about them, you know, big, tall, bald, mustache, whatever. And it got to Becca, my wife, and <laughs> I just wrote, smoke in, <laughs> exclamation point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's great. And uh, so we deployed together. She was responsible for outlining what's called the the golden hour. So for special operations, uh, ideally, we don't operate in any area 
where we're not able to get to some level of healthcare or medical care in less than an hour. And she was responsible for always outlining that as well as doing our, our healthcare checkups, our medical checkups during deployment. And, you know, somewhere along the deployment, we hit it off and, you know, I called her up to my office and, and I, I told her that I was starting to develop some type of feelings for her. You were smitten for her. That's right. And that's right. I think it, it all came down to when we discussed what kind of car we, we really liked. And I had, for some reason, I, I loved the Audi A5 or S5. And she came up and I asked her what kind of car. And she was like, oh, I love the Audi RS5. I was like, what? Oh, wow. <laughs> right? It was almost as though she had read my mind or something. And uh, anyway, she admitted that she had feelings for me too. And and it kind of went from there. She always jokes that she wished she had said, oh, oh, this is awkward. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, I was indirectly her boss of some sorts. Anyway, uh, we came back from deployment uh, after a six-month deployment together and started dating officially. We knew pretty quickly that we were meant for one another and we eloped and did a, did a formal elopement. It wasn't just kind of a spur of the moment thing. And we got married with, you know, the pastor, a witness and our three dogs there to witness it. And then quickly from there, we went off to Kathmandu, Nepal to do a, a medical mission together. The rest is history. Now we've got three young kids and next year we will have been married for 10 years. Oh, congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. So when did she find out that you labeled her smoking? <laughs> yeah, I, I think I told her pretty soon after I told her that I had feelings. I I showed her the note in my notebook that, that said smoking. And as a matter of fact, we eloped, but after after we'd been married for a year, we got married, went to Kathmandu, did the Nepal mission. And then I went to Bahrain for a year, you know, solo without her and then came back. And then we had a formal party. It wasn't a reception or anything. It was just a big party. And I, I remember breaking out the note at that party and reading it and showing everyone. <laughs> so, yeah. That's awesome. I love that. That's so great. That's such a great story, John. Thanks for sharing. That's awesome. Yeah. So I think in the early part of the pandemic, you guys had a little bit of RV life. Yes. And so I bring yes, this up because last year I rode my bike across the country. My wife drove the RV. So we had six weeks in the RV. Oh, there you go. We were not RVers. So the question I have for you is, what did you discover <laughs> during this period of RV life for you? Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, we it was at the time, it was my wife, two kids, and our dog, and myself in a 31-foot Class C RV. We lived in it for six months. We had been planning this for a while to move into the RV as I retired from the military and then drive around the country, see places that we'd been meaning to see and everything. But it was unfortunately at the height of the pandemic. So we didn't get to see a lot of what we had hoped to see. What we learned is that there is the bowl of soup that is too hot, the bowl of soup that is too cool, and then the bowl of soup that is just perfect. And an RV, I think, is too small for our family <laughs> at the time that we were uh, living in. And, you know, now we've got three kids and we still have the RV. We've done a few trips and it's it's sporty with the the five of us in there with our dog. And now the the other side where the bowl is too hot is, is our, our farm that we live on here in Colorado Springs. We love it, but it's uh, it is a lot of work because both Becca and myself work full time and the three kids and maintaining the barn. So we're probably going to find some bowl of soup that is somewhere in the middle of the RV in the farm and and find uh, find that happy medium. You got to get that Goldilocks exactly, bowl. Exactly, right? That's, <laughs> that's good. Yeah, we when we did it, it was the two of us and our two dogs and a 25-footer. So we were, we were cozy. Yeah. <laughs> what size dogs do you guys have? So we have three Springers now, but back then we had two Springer Spaniels. Oh, yeah. So they're about like 25-ish pounds. Yeah, those are great. So halfway through, my wife was like, I want Hopi to sleep in the big bed with us. Again, everything is yeah, relative, yeah. right? So it wasn't really a big bed. So here I am, I'm riding every day and Hopi's now in the middle of the bed. <laughs> it was it, it was comical. It was a great trip. We, we, we saw... 
we saw a lot. And obviously last year we had gotten through the bulk of the pandemic. So everything was open to us. Nice. So that's cool. I love your adventure. That's pretty cool. Spending six months in one. That's pretty. We had a lot of fun. Pretty awesome. All right. Let's, let's get a little bit deeper here. So you weren't born in the States. No. I think you, you, yeah, you were born somewhere else. You came here. So why don't we dive into that? So um, love to know like, the, so those beginning days and then how it led to you serving in our military. Yeah, the irony is, uh, so I, I was born in Cape Town, South Africa. And when I was six, my parents decided they wanted to leave South Africa for a number of reasons. One is that South Africa at the time was still practicing apartheid, which is, you know, segregation. And they didn't agree with that, obviously. And then the other one is that my younger brother and I, at the time, South Africa was still practicing the draft for men when they graduated high school or, or the, the equivalent of high school. And my parents didn't want us to be drafted in the military. So we came over here. I went through the schooling system in Ruston, Louisiana. And then I voluntarily enlisted in the Navy, which my father was not thrilled about initially. But um, after some time, uh, he, he came to grips with it and then was very proud of me and, and is still proud of me to this day. And, uh, you know, he's my, he's my hero. He and my mom are both my heroes. As far as how that tied into my going into the military, coming over to Ruston, Louisiana from South Africa when I was now seven by the time we, we actually got here. There was a little bit of culture shock. I had started first grade in South Africa, you know, wearing uniforms, all white kids in school together. And then I came over to Louisiana, you know, the South, no uniforms and kind of all colors in the school as far as race. And that was great. Looking back on it, it's definitely culture shock, but it was great. And I'm very glad that my parents did it. Then growing up through the schooling system there, I don't know, I had just been involved in various school programs, 4-H, uh, you know, Honor Society, Future Business Leaders of America, all these different things. And then I'd been an athlete as well. And I just found, I found myself in always wanting to serve. Within all those programs, I wanted to be a leader within those programs. And then I ran track and cross country in high school. And my coach was like a second father to us. And, you know, as much as I loved him, I also hated him because he put us through brutal workouts. But this team, we were like brothers and we, we hung out and did absolutely everything together in addition to our obvious training. And then, uh, you know, sophomore, junior year in high school, I was like, you know, what am I going to do when I graduate? And I realized that because I'd been serving in some capacity in these different programs and then within the cross-country team, I'd been the team captain from when I was a sophomore. I realized, you know, I, I want to serve. I want to continue to serve. And the military was kind of a natural way for me to do that. And then specifically special operations, because this group of runners had been so tight, I wanted to be part of a tight-knit group. And special operations is that. So that's what led me to the military and then more specifically to the special operations community. Wow, that's great. So that whole thread, that first principle of service starts really young. Yeah, it did for me. And, you know, I think it, a lot of it came from my parents. My mother was a nurse and a midwife and had served the community. And then my father, he was, a, he was an architect, but he was always looking for ways to serve his, his fellow people in, in the community. He had instilled a, a deep sense of integrity and honesty and trust in me. And, and I saw that in the military leaders that I, I knew at the time. You know, this was early 90s. Like, uh, I remember seeing Storm and Norman Schwarzkopf and having a, a lot of trust. And I don't know, I looked up to him, Colin Powell, uh, I looked up to him, these leaders. And so the, the military kind of jumped out at me as a, as a way to continue to serve. But I think it was instilled in me and through my parents and then further drilled into me from my coach and the, the organizations that I was a part of in school. Yeah. And then also some, you just mentioned two military leaders who had iconic personalities. Oh, for sure. From a cultural perspective. So you have all these ingredients that now are propelling you into special operations, which for a layperson, that's the Navy SEAL team, right? Yeah, exactly. So for me, you know, there's special operations. You've got the, the Navy SEALs, the Army Rangers, the, the Marine Raiders, uh, the Special Forces, the Green Berets, all phenomenal in their sure. own right. And they all have their specialties. But 
for me, the the Navy kind of called out to me, even though I grew up in Louisiana, every summer uh, we would go to the the beach and hang out at the beach and the ocean was kind of my happy place. So the the Navy called out to me and and uh, the obviously within the Navy, the special operations community is the SEALs. So that's where, that's why I ended up. So you went for the toughest group. <laughs> it, but, but there's some debate. We're not going to start this debate here. So but we'll just say you went for a tough group. I, I went for one of the tough groups is what I, yeah. <laughs> one of the tough groups, right? So depending on who you're talking to. Yeah. I mean, obviously I'm biased, but yes. <laughs> yeah, of course. It's okay to own your bias, right? So that's totally fine. You first got to have awareness and accept that it's part of being human. That's right. So then you get, you do end up getting deployed. So you mentioned Bahrain, but you've also been deployed in other places. Yeah. And part of Kintsugi, as you know, we've talked about in the past, it's like the Japanese art where it breaks apart and then it's put back together. It speaks to resilience and um, perseverance and maybe some grit, but what's broken can come back together in a different, beautiful state. So I'm sure you saw a lot in your deployments. And I didn't know if you could, you know, sort of share how that's, some of those experiences shaped you and and then we'll step into how you found mindfulness coming through that. Yeah, sure. You know, I, I saw some things, did some things, but in, in all honesty, within special operations, I didn't see or do as much as a lot of my brothers. And I, I never want to give the impression that I did a whole lot on the on the battlefield. Now, I mean, I, d- I did what I needed to do. What I actually struggled with the most was what I did not do on the battlefield. In particular, there was an operation in 2005 where I was in the what's called the CJSOTF, CJSOTF, Combined Joint Special Operations Task Force. It's basically a uh, it's a staff job, and I was a liaison officer for the Naval Special Warfare Task Unit at the time in Afghanistan. I was working the radios, the computers, the the phones, and liaising between the Naval Special Warfare Task Unit and all the other special operations organizations that were out there. And Operation Red Wings happened. And if you or your audience are not familiar with Operation Red Wings, it's the one that the Lone Survivor book and movie are based on. And I worked in, again, in that special operations task force on the radios and and the computers and everything else. And when everything went sideways with that operation, we started losing guys on the battlefield. And then we had a a helicopter that was shot down. The last place that I wanted to be was on the radios. The last place I wanted to be was behind the computers. The first place I wanted to be was on the battlefield. And I was not there. And that was, to me, the hardest emotional and psychological challenge that I had within my professional career within the SEAL teams. I had other emotional and and, uh, mental challenges within my marriage and and other things. But as far as professionally, that was was it. And that caused me a lot of anxiety and and survivor's guilt, moral injury, to the point where I ended up self-medicating with alcohol and prescription medications and kind of just looking for anything that was going to numb the pain. And, uh, you know, I was not, I was not present in my life as a as a professional, I wasn't present in my life as a husband. I was not a father at the time. Uh, and this is my, I, I'm married, I'm remarried. This is my first wife. And special operations is incredibly difficult for the operators, but it's also incredibly difficult for the spouses. And, uh, you know, I have no, I harbor no ill will towards my, my first wife. It's, it was tough on her. She experienced the same operation from a different side. So she had her own traumatic stress injury from this and, and other subsequent events. But uh, coming back out of that rabbit hole, uh, as far as for me, that uh, I struggled and I got to a very dark spot in my life and, and eventually sat down with a counselor. I'd sat down with lots of counselors in the past and, you know, they'd been effective to a point. All right. Let's take a break. Take a full breath in and a slow releasing breath out. And relax the body as you soak up our conversation. Ah, I hope that felt good. Okay, now that we're a little bit more relaxed, can we be real? I think our morning routines, well, they've gotten a little out of control. You might not have time in the morning to meditate, 
because you're busy doing other things like trying to get to work or getting the kids off to school. And this is where my app, Pause, Breathe, Reflect, comes in because I built it for busy people with a whole bunch of shorter practices. So if you don't have 10 minutes in the morning to meditate, cool beans. You're human after all. But I bet you have five times throughout the day when you have two minutes to practice and let go of stress and bring mindfulness to your everyday moments. So today, download Pause, Breathe, Reflect for free and begin to stress less, sleep better, and join a community of like-hearted humans rippling something worth rippling into the world. All right, let's go back to our conversation and celebrate the Kintsugi within us all. I just want to acknowledge like how human your reaction was to not being where you spent a lot of your life almost training and preparing for. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, emotionally and mentally and, and physically, this identity of you as a leader, as a team member, being there for others, seeing that from your parents. And now in a time of great need, you're you're not there. And so that reaction is like, how human is that? So it was so very human. So that's a piece that is not often talked about is, you know, what happens to the people who are not on the battlefield. Everybody just assumes post-traumatic stress injuries are from what you did on the battlefield. And, and in all honesty, you know, what I did on the battlefield was what I needed to do. And I, I didn't struggle with that personally. And, and, and a lot of guys don't. Some, some guys do. And, you know, there's definitely events that are traumatic on the battlefield. I'm not discounting that in any shape, form or fashion. But what is not talked about is what, what happens off of the battlefield or what happens when you are not on the battlefield and you have friends and brothers who are. And that's, that's where I wasn't prepared for that. So I get get to this dark spot. I'm, I'm sitting across from counselor and, and he recommends, hey, I, I want you to try something. I want you to try mindfulness and meditation. And I've, I've told this story before, so it's going to sound rehearsed. But So I imagine your initial reaction was like, mindful what? Like <laughs> Exactly, right? Yeah. Like, oh, we're doing the soft yeah. stuff. <laughs> right. Hippie woo-woo, right? Hippie woo-woo. Like pretty soon you're going to be driving in a VW Beatles van or whatever. And <laughs> yeah, ironically, I, I did do that after one of my deployments. I came back and I rented a rented a VW Westphalia. <laughs> and and I, I just want to say to anyone listening, no shame if you have one of those. I think they're, <laughs> they're really fantastic. Cool. They're, they're fantastic. I wish I had one. So I'm not passing judgment. I, so. I grew up in one of those. My my, my family always had the Westphalia or the Vanagon. Yeah, that's awesome. That's so cool. But maybe there is an inner hippie in me. <laughs> maybe. Who knows? You know? <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I laughed at him, man. I laughed at him. I was like, man, I don't need this stuff. I, I need some pills. I need some some type of medication, not meditation. And he ends up, to keep the long story relatively short, he, he ends up selling it to me as a performance enhancement meditation he does. And so I try it as a performance enhancing thing. And after you know, struggling with my initial meditations. Um, I go back to him. I'm like, hey, man, this meditation is not for me. And then he introduces me to box breathing, which we had done in the SEAL teams. We just didn't call it box breathing. We called it tactical breath, you know, taking a few tactical breaths before we do something. And I'm like, oh, I can do this. So I, I start to do box breathing regularly and then start to get into more advanced breath work and then start to get into the meditation. So I did not, I didn't have any luck starting with a formal meditation. My meditation sucked the first one, first few <laughs> and by few. Yeah. I, your mind's going everywhere. Like I, I can't, can't stay focused. This is, yeah. this is rubbish, you know, exactly. like exactly. I can probably have some other words, but we'd like to keep it clean here. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. So you can imagine. So, you know, after, after about, I don't know, two or three months, I start to feel different in my performance. And I the side effect, if you will, is that I started to process a lot of inner demons, things that I had really hadn't processed before, even in the talk counseling that I had. I was like, oh, I'm actually struggling with what I didn't do on the battlefield, uh, not what I did do on the battlefield. Because I'd always gone to talk counseling to say, hey, you know, this is what I did. This is what I did. This is what I did. Not this is what I didn't do. And 
when I sat in the meditations, some of this stuff bubbled up and then I was able to go to the talk counseling and process it. And then as stress and anxiety came into my life in other forms at other times, I was able to process it better. It didn't do away with stress. It didn't do away with anxiety. It didn't do away with depression. I love John Kabat-Zinn. I'm a huge fan of John Kabat-Zinn, but I, I am not a huge fan of the, the term mindfulness-based stress reduction because I honestly don't believe that mindfulness reduces stress. What I believe it reduces is your perception of stress and how you handle stress. And that is the difference. Once I realized, oh, you know what? It's not going to reduce my stress. It's going to reduce how I process and handle it. That's, that was a huge mindset shift for me. And I did, in fact, handle it differently. Um, you know, major, major things that happened in my life since then, since I've been a practitioner, I handled differently, but the stress was still there. Long story short, again, I attribute mindfulness and meditation to changing my life for the better, but also quite literally saving my life. So that's what I do now is I, I teach mindfulness and meditation to veterans, to healthcare, to first responders, and to corporate teams, which, I mean, I know that's a fairly large blanket and covers a lot of folks. That's a lot of people, but you know what? Yeah, like to your, uh, imagine you're going to make this point, a lot of people could find value in mindfulness, right? So, uh, you know, make the net as big as you want to make it. Uh, exactly. I don't, I don't think it can be big enough. <laughs> no, I think, I do think the world, if, the, if 8 billion of us just took a moment each day just to slow down and connect with something, ourselves, our breath, our soundscape, we would have a much more peaceful world. We'd be, oh, indeed. we'd be more thoughtful and Compassionate. Yeah, compassionate. So I started, too, my practice with a box breathing pattern. Nice. That's how I started uh, in my wheelchair in the hospital. I also found John Kabat-Zinn and mindfulness-based stress reduction. And I would agree with you. Mindfulness changes your relationship with stress. Right. So the waves keep coming. And John has said this, the waves keep coming, but we can learn how to surf. Right. So I love that. Stress is always going to happen. You know, it's going to keep coming. But when we meet a stressful moment, hopefully it's less intense and it doesn't last as long. You know, it doesn't grab onto us as strongly as it once did. Yeah. So I love, I love that, that recognition. I'm right there with you. It's like, I don't want to promise anyone that they're going to reduce their stress, but perhaps just change the relationship that they have with stress. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. So... Current day, so you mentioned you're working with veterans, you're working with corporate folks, first responders, all people who I love. I, you know, I love all people. I like lightheartedness, right? So, um, and my first responders, they hold a very special place in my heart. Sure. They saved my life. And then from there, I found mindfulness to almost to your point, John, mindfulness saved my life as well. And you have a podcast with one of your buds, another dude. Yep. So it's, you know, men talking about mindfulness, right? Do I have the title right? Men talking mindfulness. So I would love to get your take just on men today. So we currently, we hear about men today. The statistics are sobering in terms of male suicide and, and violence and male depression and just men feeling lost. Right. And then... In most circles, when you bring up meditation and mindfulness to men, you get the same type of reaction that you sort of had way back in the beginning. Like, no, 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 no. It's it's not hard enough. Like, you're going to, is this some thing to take away my man card? You know, <laughs> so I would love for you to comment just on how you see men today and mm. And how do you speak to men about mindfulness today as a way to, and as we talk about Kintsugi, men today, I'm going to paint with a real broad brush. There is some brokenness or at least some cracks, right? There's some pain and suffering. Oh, 100%. So if we can help men come into their own Kintsugi, you know, and celebrate the scars that we all have, I'd love for you to share some thoughts about that for folks. Yeah, I think. Throughout history, throughout human history, everyone has been broken, cracked in some, some form or fashion. For men to admit that, though, it is seen as a weakness. It's so hard. Yeah. It's, 
it's seen as a vulnerability, which men equate vulnerability with weakness. For your listeners, if, if they're not familiar with Brene Brown, she does some incredible work on what vulnerability actually is. And a lot of what she has taught has helped me to understand that vulnerability is not at all a weakness. Vulnerability and acknowledging your vulnerability and working with that vulnerability, that is, in fact, a strength. So, I mean, that's, that is Kintsugi, right? I yeah, mean, that's, it's courageous. That's acknowledging the cracks, putting it, putting it back together. And and then seeing something more beautiful with the cracks, and you know it's the it's the old bent but not broken kind of analogy. And men, in particular, the hyper masculine society that we can be that we can find ourselves in, we are seen as conquerors, providers, and protectors. I have a book back there somewhere called Reinventing Masculinity, and it's by Ed Fraunheim and Ed Adams. Fantastic. They call they say two Eds are better than one. <laughs> I like that. That's pretty good. It's clever. Yeah. In in reinventing masculinity, we've had them both on our show, men talking mindfulness. Um, reinventing masculinity, they talk about those three roles that men are kind of pigeonholed into. Again, the conqueror, the provider, and the protector. And quite often what we hear in in society these days is toxic masculinity. And people equate that term, toxic masculinity, with masculinity. They just think, oh, well, all masculinity is toxic. That's not what the term toxic masculinity was ever coined for. It was not to say that all masculinity is toxic. Any opinion, faith, religion, political view that you try to enforce on someone else, that's when things become toxic. That's when masculinity becomes toxic is when you try to force it on someone. But what they, rather than using the term toxic masculinity, they use the term confined masculinity. And that is, again, confining ourselves as men, as masculine figures to the three roles of provider, conqueror, and protector. That's it. When we know all well that there's much more to life than those three roles. There is the artist, there is the nurturer, there's the lover, there's, you know, the, the follower. There, there are many, many different roles that we all play at different times. And when we confine ourselves to only those three roles, then we are ashamed of any other role. So the inverse of the confined masculinity is, uh, I forget the, the term that they call it exactly, but it's basically open and released masculinity. Um, and that is opening yourself up to much more. And when you do do that, you see that there is much more to life. Again, we've, we've known that, but now we can be open as human beings and not just as these confined men. And when you do that, you can open yourself up to the vulnerabilities and exhibit true strength, which is acknowledging your vulnerabilities and working on them. Not necessarily when I say working on them, I don't mean trying to change them into a strength, you know, where I, hey, I'm going to take my weakness and turn it into strength. I'm not talking about that. It's, it's working on it, sitting with it, acknowledging it, being curious about it. What made you vulnerable in that way? What can help? Again, not necessarily strengthen, but what can help you here and there? Where can you lean on others? And I think that is incredibly helpful. Coming back to your statistics that you said, we've had Jed Diamond on the show, and he's written about male loneliness and how it's only gotten worse with time. You know, social media has made us connected in ways that we've never been connected before, but we're more disconnected as well. And as we move up through the corporate ladder or the military ladder or whatever ladder it is that we're climbing as men, we find ourselves more and more lonely. And we find that it's more difficult to make friends as we get older, right? You have your friends from grade school and that you were your friends because you were in the same grade and school, then maybe you're in the same college as some folks or the same corporate environment or same business environment for a while. And then you, those relationships kind of fade. And then you're like, well, now how am I supposed to make friends as a, as a man? Like there's this feeling that if you make friends as a, as an adult male, that you're going to be perceived as feminine, homosexual, which, you know, I, I do not have anything against any race, creed, religion, sexual orientation, but, oh, I, I don't want to be perceived as soft X, Y, or Z. Yeah. There's a, there perceived softness to. Yes, exactly. Perceived softness, right? Yeah. Oh, I, I don't need, I don't need friends. I'm a man alone, right? I'm an, I'm an island that stands alone. No, we're not. And in that loneliness, that's where the depression can really seep in. And we convince ourselves that we have all these relationships because we have thousands of quote unquote friends on social media, but 
true friends, like who are you going to call if you really get into a funk, which we all do. We all end up in those funks at some point. Who are you going to call? Maybe having five or 10 people on that list, identifying who those people are, that's critical. And then really, if you get into a crisis, maybe who's the two or one people that you're going to call, identifying that. And then, you know, having that is hugely important, not just in that time of crisis, but knowing that you have that team, that network, that support is there. Knowing that is is huge for your your mental health. And then, yeah, the men's suicide rate, uh, you know, it, it is higher than women's. The suicide attempts with women is higher, but suicide actual carrying through with the, the act um, is higher with men because traditionally we choose more violent ways of doing it. What's been shown with women is they choose, you know, sleeping pills or something and men choose firearms. And the success rate, I hate to call it success, but the, the completion rate with a firearm is much higher than it is with pills. Oh, an overdose, yeah. Right. So the access to mechanisms for taking lives for men, unfortunately, is that method. So yeah, the loneliness, identifying when you are lonely, when you feel lonely, kind of working through that, having a network that you can lean on, and then identifying and acknowledging that your vulnerabilities are not a weakness in any shape, form, or fashion. Your vulnerabilities and being aware of them, that's a strength. Yeah, and it's complete courage, as Brene has shared in numerous talks. But that arc of life, John, that you shared is so common amongst us, right? So we, you know, a lot of us are going to be active in high school and however we are active, we go to college, then we uh, we have friends from college, we keep a few of those, we go into professional life, we meet other people, we work our way up the corporate ladder. We think we're surrounded by friends, but we're really surrounded mainly, 98% of the people that surround you are colleagues, not friends. Right. And you might grow your LinkedIn connections. But again, those are connections, not friends. And then we retire and maybe we get married and have kids and our kids then grow up and we become an empty nest. And we notice that our partner, our wife has a whole social network to lean into and we don't. And yeah, it can get so lonely. And we, we can point to the Harvard longitudinal study about, you know, overall well-being and also just the work around blue zones. And both studies, independent, really do speak to the importance of community for a long, happy, and fulfilled life. So what I call community is, since I'm a cyclist, I call it your peloton. So in your peloton, you have certain roles. So you have hopefully a few guys or just people that can help you when you need a moment of clarity. They're going to ask you the really good question. There'll be people who are there to comfort you maybe when you're grieving, can be there for a 911 crisis, as you mentioned, the one or two people that you call. Right. There are people there that will challenge you, like that coach you had in high school. And then the person that you can really celebrate with. Our communities, our support networks, our squad or Peloton, hopefully has some diversity to it. Because if it's only falling on one or two other guys or other people, then we're putting a lot of eggs in one basket. So, oh, for sure. And my my father will love that you call the the group the Peloton. My father is a big cyclist. And okay, always has been. He's a, you know in his early eighties and still riding 50, 50 milers here and there. Good for him. Way to go. And and my mother, my mother started joining him as well. But That's it's always nice. been his thing. Nice. Well, you can pass on the whole Peloton concept to him. So when you think about how men can start with mindfulness. You mentioned how you started. You started a little rough. Yes. Right? So as you go in and you work with veterans and others about starting a mindfulness practice, how do you recommend starting it for folks? Yeah, basically, I tell them my story about how I tried to jump in to an hour-long meditation day one after that counselor. Wow, that was ambitious, man. That was really, like, holy cow. Yeah, you know, type A personality. So if, I, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it all the way. <laughs> go big or go home, baby. Exactly, exactly. And well, I went home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I tried to go big and I went home. You know, after, after failing miserably at that first attempt of a longer meditation, uh, I went back to that doc and like I said, I, hey man, this meditation stuff is not for me. And then he asked me, well, what did I do? And I told him that I tried to jump into an hour long meditation. He's like, well, that's like 
you know, lining up at the starting line of a marathon without ever having run a step before or going into the weight room and getting under 350 pounds on the bench press without ever having lifted weights before. You, you don't do that. You work your way up to that. So for, for those who are interested in getting started, uh, I recommend starting with box breathing. It's a very simple exercise, but it's incredibly powerful as well. Uh, you know, just for those who are not familiar with what box breathing is, it, it is literally breathing in for a count of four, holding for a count of four, breathing out for a count of four and holding for a count of four and doing that four or five times. And for those who are listening and can't see this, I drew the edges of a box. So the first breathing in for a count of four is that first edge of the box, holding for a count of four is the top of the box, breathing out for the count of four is the other edge, and then holding for the count of four is the bottom of the box. That's why it's called box breathing. And you do that multiple times. And that helps you to tap into the parasympathetic side of the nervous system. And the parasympathetic is the rest and digest. It's the part that's controlled by the vagus nerve, which is like the switch that turns our response on rather than our reaction. Our reaction uh, is, is controlled by the amygdala. It's the fight, flight, or freeze part of the, the nervous system, the sympathetic state. And a lot of us kind of live in that sympathetic state. I'm getting a little sciencey here, but the, the reason I, I get sciencey is that so many of us are very analytical, black and white, need to see the numbers, the figures, the data, the science behind it. And I'm, I'm one of those people. And once I understood that it's not just hippy-dippy-woo-woo, -woo, <laughs> as we kind of talked about at the beginning, that there's actually physiological changes that are happening in your body, in your mind, in your nervous system, that's when I was able to get a little further into it. So I think starting small, then understanding the physiology is, is big, and then working your way into deeper, longer meditations with time, giving yourself time and consistency. Consistency is key. Just like the gym, like, right? You can't do a meditation once a week and expect it to change your, your body, your mind, and your nervous system. If you meditate and you practice some level of mindfulness regularly, that's when you're going to start to see and feel the changes in yourself. So I recommend starting small, work your way up and be consistent. I love it. Great sage advice. Yeah. Baby steps, right? That's right. And as I've shared many times before, a baby's first step, it's still hard. Yeah. Like we, we talk about baby steps. Oh, it's a baby step. But that baby taking that first step is putting a whole bunch of focus and intention on that first step. So give yourself some patience, maybe some grace that those first steps are going to take a lot of effort. That's why we take a small step. And then we uh, keep repeating it, rinse and repeat consistently over time. And then you look back, much like you look back after a month, three months, maybe even longer and be like, oh, oh yeah, things are different. I noticed that things are different. And you're creating a bit of a space between what just happened and instead of reacting to it, now you can be a little bit more thoughtful in terms of your response. Right, exactly. And now you've changed your relationship with stress. You know, the uh, you could go with PBR, pause, breathe, and repeat. <laughs> yeah, we could too. Yeah, I can play I can play with the R a lot. Like people have yeah. given me a lot of different variations and I'm like, I can't go PBR, R, 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 R. <laughs> you know, that'd be, the, the shirt would have to be an XL2 or something like that for it to all fit. So, um, but the notion, totally embrace it. Yeah. That's pretty good. That's pretty cool. I love it. So besides mindfulness, what else helps you? We talked about community yeah, as well. Yep. So there's something called Urishi. So Urishi is the paste, if you will. It's made from a tree yep. that is used to put the pottery back together to form the kintsugi. So when you think of maybe the ingredients for good resilience or the things that as you work with others that they can tap into besides having a good squad or a Peloton. Now that you know you're a Peloton familiar, I can use that phrase. Yeah. So you have a strong Peloton, you have mindfulness. Are there other things, John, that you recommend to folks to build more resilience, to change their relationship with stress? Yeah. I mean, first I, I just got to hit on the Peloton <laughs> again. You know, I, I grew up watching the Tour de France 
and my my father and I used to video it like on a VCR, like tape it and watch wow, it together. That's old school. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like digging that. Yeah, man. and and uh, you know we would always watch these breakaways and and know that the peloton was going to catch them. And now now if you say the word peloton, everybody thinks that you're talking about the peloton bike, the the spin bike, right? Spin bike. Yeah, but believe, believe me, believe me, even the the peloton company. Has said that to me. <laughs> so you, you, uh, you cannot own that term. Really. You can't own. You can't own the word. It's like <laughs> it's French. The yeah. French are not going to sell it to you. Right. So anyhow, as far as yeah, having a peloton, having a group, having a community, absolutely huge um, to kind of hold you accountable and for you to lean on. I, I cannot stress that enough. Absolutely huge. And then I think you know having some level of faith in yourself. And I don't mean necessarily religious faith, but having faith in yourself. And that can come through gratitude journaling. It can come through positive affirmations. It can come through just seeing yourself in a different way. I, I literally, you know, when I, I went to the Naval Academy, I'd grown up in this small town, again, Ruston, Louisiana, small town or medium-sized town, but I'd kind of been this big fish in a small pond. I show up at the Naval Academy and now I'm surrounded by a whole lot of big fish and I'm like this minnow. And I started to struggle academically and athletically and ended up thinking that I needed to quit and that I didn't deserve to be there. And I had a, an upperclassman pull me aside and say, you know what, John, you're not giving yourself enough credit. You, you do deserve to be here. And it was like a switch had been flipped in my brain. And I started to tell myself the, you know, the positive affirmations like Stuart Smalley in the old SNL skits, right? Absolutely. A little self-talk. Yeah. I'm, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough and doggone it. People like me. I deserve to be yeah. here. Yeah. So I think that it helps. works. Yep. I think continually putting yourself into situations that require effort and discipline and also offer a chance of getting knocked down because that's what resilience is, right? It's getting knocked down and then getting back up. Well, you can't continually put yourself in spots where you're never, ever going to get knocked down because then you will never learn. So put yourself out there, put yourself in those positions where you take risks and accept that getting knocked down is part of the game and getting back up and then learning why you got knocked down, right? Why did I get knocked down? What caused me to get knocked down? Who knocked me down? Learning from that and then coming back smarter, coming back faster, coming back stronger, coming back better, that's going to cause you to be more resilient in the long term. Putting yourself into uncomfortable situations, um, you know, whether that's speaking on a stage, getting into the gym, getting on the bike and riding across America, you know, continue to put yourself in uncomfortable situations, get comfortable, you know, as trite as it sounds, get comfortable being uncomfortable. And then, uh, and then I, I think getting comfortable being scared. And I, I'm not talking like watching a horror film, right? I'm, I'm talking, you know, doing things that scare you, like leading teams and making the tough decisions. Uh, and I talk about this in, in my book and I talk about it on my, uh, some of my keynotes. But we had in SEAL training, we have this thing called rock portage. And rock portage is, you know, you row this, these inflatable boats out past the waves, and then you row them back into these rocks, these rocks that are out, right outside the Hotel Del Coronado, which is a beautiful hotel. Yeah, gorgeous. Yeah. And, and you do this in the daytime once or twice, and, and there's a whole lot of tourists out there in front of the Hotel Del watching you do this. And, you know, it's not too scary. It's kind of fun, actually, because got all these tourists watching you and kind of think you're cool. And then, and then about 12 hours later, you do it again at night. There's no tourists and you can't see a whole lot. And when you're rowing out past the surf, that's scary enough at night. And then knowing that you have to now row this boat back in to the rocks, it's pretty terrifying. I was scared of the rocks. I was scared of being hurt, but I was more scared of failure. I was more scared of imperfection. And I told my guys, my boat crew, that we were going to wait for the perfect wave. And all these other boat crews take these kind of less than perfect waves and they crash on the rocks and I was like, oh, yeah, that's kind of what I expected to see. And then we finally see this perfect wave and we catch it perfectly and we land the boat perfectly. And and then from behind the rocks, I hear these instructors you know, yelling at me like, Mr. McCaskill, where the hell have you and your boat crew been? And I yell back at them, you know, I was, I was waiting for the perfect wave. <laughs> and that went over like a lead balloon, right? Because the battlefield and war and life in general is never ever going to be perfect. You cannot wait for things to be perfect. You have to you have to do things when they're not perfect and you have to be brave enough to do it when it's not perfect. And once you can get used to doing things 
when they're not perfect and when you're not perfect and when there's going to be failures and there's going to be imperfection, that I think is going to help you to be more resilient and not just you as a as an individual, but your your team as well. That's, I think, uh, what helps you to be, become more resilient and, and more beautiful after the, the knockdowns uh, and, and stronger after the knockdowns. You are Kintsugi, for sure. I love that. That's some great advice, John. So, yeah, we don't become more resilient sitting on the couch. <laughs> and No, we don't. We have to be brave enough to do things imperfectly and when conditions are not perfect. Right. So I'm going to get you out on a few last questions. So in the spirit of Kintsugi, we celebrate our scars. Is there a scar that you have that you uh, you really love about yourself that you celebrate? Ironically, it's, it is a metaphorical scar of my own, but a true scar of my daughter's. My daughter, who is, who is now six years old, when she was six months old, it was identified that she had a massive tumor in her liver and we had to turn her over to the surgeon and have that, that tumor removed, you know, after we were told three weeks prior to that, that it needed to happen. And I handed her over to the surgeon. At this point, my wife is in the medical field, but she was in the waiting room. I handed my daughter over to the surgeon alone. And, uh, and he said, he turns to me, he's like, Hey, this, this is not going to be a small surgery. This is, we're going to have to cut her completely open from one side to the next. And I'm sorry that I have to break your, your perfect little China doll. And uh, I was more scared there than I've ever been on the battlefield, turning my little girl over, knowing that I had no control whether or not the surgery went well. It did go well. Like I said, she's six years old now and is thriving. But that was, to me, me being vulnerable, me being open to accepting the surgeon as the professional and the one who could do what needed to be done. And me kind of turning over control because I'm a control freak or I can be. And me just taking a step back and saying, you know what? Somebody else has got this. So that was uh, my scar, if you will, of, of kind of letting go of control. And I, I try to do that more often now because I know I am not the master of all. And other people can do many, many things better than I can. So my, my scar was that I thought that I could do everything and that I would never turn it over to anyone. And it has now become that I can trust others. And ironically, it has to do, or, or maybe not ironically, but incidentally, it has to do with a literal scar for my, my baby girl. Wow. What a great story. So that's the section of the show where I say, I'm not crying. You're crying. <laughs> right. You know, I'm a girl dad times two. So when you were sharing that, I was like, oh yeah, man. Dang. Yeah, two little girls and a little boy of my own. And yeah, no, I, pride and joy. I feel for you. All right. So mindfulness, I believe is medicine. So is movement. So how do you prefer to move your body? Mm, I love it, man. Uh, Dr. Teresa Larson, a good friend of mine and business partner of mine, she would love that you brought this up. I, I wear a Garmin watch that reminds me to move every hour. And I try to get my 10,000 steps in every day. All right, cool. You know, I have a stand-up desk. I'm actually sitting down at mine. But in the background here, you can also see my little, my ball that I sit on. Yep. You know, through some of my calls. But I'll stand up. I'll sit on that. I'll move around in the in the office. I've got the the little bands up on the wall here. Oh, yeah, I see those. Yeah, yeah. and then you'll get a kick out of this one. Oh, wow. You have one <laughs> of those little like pedal things. I've got this un under the desk cycling things. Yeah, for, the, for right, those who are not it. watching. Uh, you know, it's a, it's the little pedals that you can put on your desk, but I also use it for my hands like this, just, just doing that yeah. just to get some movement right. into my body because, uh, the cocktail of hormones that are released when you move so many of us these days just sit all day long. And that's the, that's the new smoking, right? It's so bad for us to sit continually. We were made to move and in moving, it's great for our bodies. And, and Dr. Teresa Larson, I attribute this quote to her, though I don't know if it's hers originally, but she says, motion is lotion. Motion is lotion for our joints, but it's also great for our minds and our, our nervous systems. It helps to do so much good for us in, in the long run. I know that if I've been sitting all day, I am actually more stressed, more anxious, and my sleep suffers, which you know is also another great foundation for so much. So when I move more, I feel better. So that's uh, the, the mind and the body 
as we well know, they're inextricably inter interconnected. No, it's one system. So why not work on both of them at the same time? I love it. And again, much like we talked about mindfulness, it's bite-sized pieces. That's right. You don't have to run a marathon. You can just do five minutes. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, it's been shown that, you know, a, a lot of people who train in the gym, they'll go and they'll do their half hour, their hour long in the gym, or they'll run, for, they'll train for a marathon and get their, you know, eight miles in in the morning, but then they won't, they won't move again the rest of the day. It's the, it's the unplanned movement that's actually the beneficial. Yes. Yes. Going out and running eight miles, that's going to be great for you. But if you sit all day long, the rest of the time, you may as well not even run. Yeah. It has to be embodied. We have mindfulness as medicine, movement is medicine, and one way to move is music. So you have a song or a band that will get you moving? <laughs> yeah, I won't necessarily say a band. Or an artist or a song. Yeah, uh, although I, I used to love Metallica. Okay, yeah. But my wife has gotten me into electronic dance music, EDM. All right. And there's a there's a group or a group of DJs called Above and Beyond, and I I, I like their stuff. Uh, it really gets me going. But uh, I actually I, I watch YouTube videos, motivational YouTube videos, and there's a there's a guy who I'm going to mispronounce his name. It's Matthias Matthias. Yeah, it's something like that. Anyway, he has a whole lot of motivational videos that I will listen to when I'm in the gym, and that that gets me moving. Cool. Yeah, you got the good cadence, you know, of the beat going and the blood's pumping. Yeah, that's awesome. Oh, I love those. Yep, I listened to it this morning in the gym. So. All right. <laughs> Very cool. All right, so I end every loving kindness meditation with may you be heard, may you be seen, may you be loved. So this is your chance as we finish up for you to share your voice so people can hear where they can best see you so they can love you even more. <laughs> love that, man. So send them to wherever you want to send them. This is your free moment to uh, yeah. share your voice. Well, thank you. I would say, you know, the easiest thing is if you go to johnmccaskill.com forward slash links, that will show you all the different social media that I'm involved in, my website, my podcast that I do with my good friend, Will Schneider, Men Talking Mindfulness. It'll take you to our YouTube channel um, and, you know, my book and, and everything else. So that's probably the easiest one is John McCaskill, J-O-N-M-A-C-A-S-K-I-L-L.com forward slash links. And I, and I love how you tied that to the, the meta meditations or the, the loving kindness meditations. Well done. Awesome. Thanks, John. Uh, thanks, brother, for coming on. Pleasure, man. Great conversation. And uh, putting a really cool ripple into the world. We need more men like you. We need more humans like you. But since we did talk about men, I will say we need more men like you to be role models for other men to say, hey, we can do this. We don't have to turn our man card in and go soft. <laughs> we can still be strong. We can still provide and protect, but we also can be vulnerable and courageous. So thanks for leading a way for other men to step into, especially during the time that we're going through right now. So I uh, appreciate you, brother. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you. And thanks for having me. All right. What did you think of John? Isn't he great? Ah, oh, what a difference maker. I believe the world needs more John McCaskills in it. As usual, I have three takeaways, but I would love to hear what you're taking away from this week's conversation. Here are my three. One, I was really moved by what John shared in the very beginning, that his inability to make a difference on the battlefield is what caused his pain. It really speaks to what happens when we can't step in to our identity or live in alignment with our first principles and values. Okay, here's number two. Vulnerability is a strength. He referenced Brene Brown. Not too many guys do that. This is a message as men we need to keep repeating. Vulnerability is a strength. It opens us up for more connection. And connection is so important as we go through our careers and reach the second half of our lives. And three, if you want to develop a healthy mindfulness practice, start small. Do it consistently over time. 
but begin with a baby step or two. That's why our Pause, Breathe, Reflect app has so many one, two, and three-minute practices so we can build a healthy mindfulness practice. So again, I hope you enjoyed our conversation with John. I hope you'll give him a follow, check out his book and his other offerings. And here is something I would like to offer you. This is for those in the U.S. and Canada. A few times each week, I send out a text message. Sometimes it's inspirational. Sometimes it's thought-provoking. But each time, it's an invitation to pause, breathe, reflect. Slow it down a bit and be thoughtful. If you'd like to receive them, they're free, but you should check your data plan. Just send me a text to 503-487-5957 and just say, Kintsugi, and I'll get you set up. Thank you again for listening, for sending in a comment, sharing this with a friend, or leaving a review. You give me the energy to keep pedaling, so keep it coming. And my commitment back to you is to share inspirational stories of resilience, of Kintsugi, so together we can celebrate our golden symbols of strength and resilience. I also like to thank the amazing humans at Saw and Sign for making our podcast sound so beautiful. And until next week, remember, when you have a challenging moment, slow down, come back to your breath. Know that you've got this and we've got you. And together, we'll ripple something worth rippling into the world.